Hello and welcome to this episode of The Pod Presents Primarily Context-Based. This podcast is a collaboration between CTOcraft and Skillerwell, but it was inspired by the Q&A site Stack Overflow, where questions have a single right answer. And questions can actually be closed and archived when they're considered primarily opinion-based. Well, we think that the most interesting questions don't have a single right answer, and their answers are primarily context-based. And in this podcast, we're going to take one of those questions, talk about a range of answers and the context that makes each of those answers appropriate. My name's Howell Carver. I'm the CEO of Skillerwell. We do deep coaching for tech teams, which is individually personalized, hands-on sessions with a live expert remotely in one-hour chunks. I've been a CTO for the last 10 years. I've run CTO dinners for the last three years, and I've been a CTO coach as well. And what I've seen is that the same questions come up again and again, but with different answers every time. And that's because context is critical. Today, we're going to talk about the question, how do you approach restructuring? And I'm delighted to be joined by Josh Goldberg, who is the author of Learning TypeScript, published by O'Reilly. And he's also a full-time open source maintainer of projects in the TypeScript ecosystem. Josh, it's great to have you here. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. How's it going? It's going well, thank you. Well, you've heard me whine about my cold, but other than my cold, (laughs) it's going very well. Uh, And I'm looking forward to talking about this because I think this is a perpetual question, right? That software engineering is is a, a sort of singular unique, unusual world where stuff that other people have done, the idea of legacy is kind of a bad thing. If people talk about legacy code, it's it's not done. It's not meant in a kind way. It's meant yeah. in, a, in <laughs> a problem that needs to be fixed way, which is why we need to do restructuring. Absolutely. You actually introduced me to a terminology split I wasn't familiar with till recently, the difference between a refactor and a restructure. But I think it's fascinating that we have so many different terms for legacy or untested or et cetera code and the actions we might take on them. Because as you said, as an industry, we have to do it just so gosh darn much. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely true. My eyes were opened by the Martin Fowler book on refactoring. It's sort of like a series of algorithms for programmers to follow to perform a variety of refactoring steps and they're kind of five-point algorithms for when you want to extract a function or reduce repetition between two existing functions and things like that. But we're going to talk about restructuring today. The idea of, I guess maybe I should ask you to define it, but for me restructuring sounds like large, well, structural change, more than just at the level of individual lines of code, it's changing architecture. Is that about right? That's how I mentally interpreted that a refactor is something you can do kind of in one sitting where it's it's one little thing you're changing like the internals of one function or one class or something like that whereas a restructure is the structure that you're completely shifting paradigms or using a different architecture or something like that i think we may be on the same page here yeah i think that's right i think exactly that like restructure is is something that you might take a year to do potentially. I think a, mm-hmm. a small restructure would be done in order of days or a week, where refactoring is a kind of a momentary, you just kind of do it sort of single commit level of change. I guess we should start by talking about motivation for restructuring. Like how do you know when it's time to restructure? You're looking at the code base and you think, or you're looking at that architecture diagram and you think, we need to change things. It's a great question. I think a lot of people get really excited about refactors and or restructures because they like the idea of something new, something shiny, or they have some pain that they're trying to address. This file 
is 3,000 lines long. And every time I touch it, it takes me uh, two days to, to test the changes. But you're always going to have to justify what you do, or at least hopefully you're going to have to justify what you do to someone, whether it's a pull request reviewer or a CTO or some other group in the, in the company, the group, the organization you're working for. So when I think about taking on restructures or re-architectures, what is the pain and what is the gain? What am I going to have to expend in order to change this code the way I want? How many hours, potential bugs, number of people impacted or who will have to participate versus what is the actual benefit here? Will I be, I don't know, X percent faster? Will I produce Y percent bugs? If it's possible to quantify those in any level of granularity, then you can make a comparison of is the pain worth the gain? And the sad truth is oftentimes, most of the time, the pain is not worth the gain, that you don't have the time, or this is one of 50 potential legacy things you could touch, and only one or three of those is really something you have time for. So that's that's kind of the general equation I try to start with. Got it. And I suppose when when the restructuring isn't justified, you instead look for the, the incremental improvements to solve the problem instead. I guess one of my big fears about restructuring or rebuilding any piece of code is always that it's done in response to some perceived problems with the current code. But because we don't have the new code, we're not able to perceive and anticipate all of the problems that that will likely come with. The new shininess often feels like exciting because it doesn't have the problems of the old code, but it may well have new problems that we haven't foreseen. Is there a way of quantifying those or anticipating those? Or do you think you just have to kind of cross your fingers and jump in? <laughs> I don't know that there is a way. I wish I, I would have one for you here, but yeah, I would love to do a thought experiment or a practical experiment where I would love to take a team that has some painful legacy thing that they'd like to restructure and then get them to restructure it into the exact same architecture that they already have to see, is it that the structure is bad or is it, as you said, that they're just griping about the cruft they've built for themselves? There's a great quote, I, f I forget where it comes from, we forge the chains we wear in life. I think part of being a, an experienced senior plus software engineer is to be able to guess sort of what levels of benefit you're getting from proposed restructuring. And that's not always mm. doable. You, you, you can't practically know how everything is going to play out until you've done it. So the answer is no. <laughs> and that quote was, we, we forge the chains we wear in life. Is that right? Yes. Oh, I'm looking it up. It's, it's stuck in my head since high school. I like it. Well, while, while you're looking that up, the thing that we can say in favor of making restructuring changes, rebuilding things, is that we now know more than we did when we made the old code. Unless we have a kind of completely new team looking at it who doesn't have that old context and doesn't doesn't know about how things used to be, we should always know more today than we did yesterday. And therefore, we hope that our decisions today about the way we build this thing will be better suited to the problem we're solving because we're that much wiser about the problem. Absolutely. And it's did you find Charles a source? Dickens. I did. It's Charles Dickens. I should have known. <laughs> Is it? Interesting. So then how do you make that decision, right? If you're in that context where you're like, we have this code that we already have with all these problems, we have these perceived benefits, we can see all the new things, we can see all the positives. You talked about kind of justifying that with outcomes. What does that process look like? How do you decide between starting again, 
how do you decide between restructuring what you already have and how do you decide between maybe more incremental improvements and sort of living with what you already have? Unfortunately, we don't always have the opportunity to stop the world for four months and rebuild everything from scratch. Most of the time we have stakeholders, users, people who need us to continue working on the product or project. So most of the time, what we can start with is small steps, which I think are oftentimes better because you need to understand how to do the thing before you go full on it. Unless you've all done this before, you probably need to ramp up on whatever new structure or technology, library framework, et cetera, you're moving to. So practically working your way towards something bigger by doing smaller steps ahead of time, maybe just doing the start of the restructure in a few files, or if it's a new language, only converting a few areas of your code base to that language first. That will give you the ability to practice, to learn the new methodology, technique, whatever it is, while still getting a few small results in. That way you're not stopping the world just to learn this new thing. Unfortunately, sometimes you do have to go completely in on something. Maybe your project development is so slow that you couldn't possibly continue to work in the current paradigm, in which case maybe you do have to stop the world. But practically speaking, I have seen that happen so rarely where the level of pain ramps up over time and people start complaining and taking action sooner rather than later. So it's it's not very common, I think, to see that a team just stops what they're doing and then four months, 10 months later has a new project to work with. Mm, it reminds me of reading a post by GitHub's engineering team about how they migrated from it was Rails 2 to Rails 3 or Rails 3 to Rails 4, how they made a major version upgrade in Rails. And I think they tried maintaining a separate branch, forked off their main branch, which had the upgrade on. And so they would keep kind of merging in code into that branch. And it was it was endless. It was a kind of oh, yeah. you know, like a Sisyphusian task, right? You know, the story of Sisyphus, like every day, cursed to roll the rock up the hill and then it would roll straight back down again. And that was his kind of task for eternity. And I think that's what it was like to be in the GitHub engineering team responsible for the upgrade. <laughs> and so what they ended up doing was they made their main branch had to work in both at once. And so they uh, started out just taking the main branch and adding some code that would have it also build in Rails 3 and also run test in, tests in Rails 3. I think it was Rails 3 that they were upgrading to. And over time, as they increased test coverage for those for cases that were breaking, they were able to identify you know, very specific bits of the code base that were going to break, have some bits that worked for both Rails 2 and Rails 3, and some bits they would just put a, a like, if Rails.version greater than 2 or whatever, or equal to 2, then do this, otherwise do this. And so they were able to maintain in the one code base both parallel versions of the code. And I suppose that also meant they were able to very readily deploy their Rails 3 version when they were confident in it and run both side by side for a time as well, which isn't quite the same as a restructuring, I think. It's not an identical case because they were doing a, essentially a light or framework upgrade. But that might be a way for people to address a very large restructuring is to have the new restructured version live in the code base with the older version and mm, slowly migrate across to it with the code, both bits of code living side by side, and then avoid stopping the world. I quite like that. There's a apologies for continuously bringing up new phrases, but one that's been in my head a lot lately is one must imagine Sisyphus happy. 
that the, <laughs> the origin of phrases on the absurdity of life. But to me, it, I like the idea that there's always something that you have to do. There's, there's always something. You're always going to be pushing that rock up the hill. And whether it's you know maintaining a large feature branch or moving from Rails X to Rails X plus one, there's always some large structure change happening. So it's a good idea to get effective at them, to understand how you can do them, how you can, say, incrementally convert over, do one file at a time, or have them both live in parallel. And I really like the strategy that GitHub took. Mm. I suppose, though, one of the things about our work should be that there is an outcome that is more meaningful to us than the rock is temporarily at the top of the hill, right? Yes, we're going to have like feature branches that become out of date from the point where they were forked, and we have to keep merging changes in or rebasing or whatever. But ultimately, that feature branch should do something meaningful for our users. And so I guess that comes back to, in our restructuring discussion, what should be benefits of restructuring and how do we then communicate those to stakeholders and people who care about our work? How do we say that this thing is worth doing and then later on prove that it was worth doing? Absolutely. Well, we should ask ourselves that question. Why do we want this thing in the first place? It's almost always something new and shiny that people are asking for, but why? In the case of Rails 2 to Rails 3, one can imagine security updates, more features coming out, the threat of it not being a maintained framework going forward. Oftentimes, the idea of switching to something is instigated because the old thing is going to get out of date and the new thing is going to be the maintained version. You don't want to be on an out-of-date framework such as Rails. So sometimes there are things that you just have to do. You just have to move to the newest version of your core foundation or framework because in five years, it will be much more difficult and the old version will be out of date. So, mm-hmm. you know, hands down, that that's always a nice motivation. You have to do it. But for things you don't have to do, there's some benefit from doing it in theory that you should be able to articulate. Most of the time, the benefit that I have seen developers want is for themselves, for developer experience which oftentimes comes down to a better development flow, that it's, say, easier to modify. There are fewer files you have to touch. It's easier to test. Or it's a better user flow, that it's a simpler architecture that has fewer likely bugs or looks better for users in the visual field. Whatever those benefits are, it's a good idea to quantify those benefits because not everyone you're going to talk to about them is going to be technical and excited about, oh, it's the new version, it's got a better structure clean code. And even for people who do understand the technical side, that isn't necessarily their primary motivation. If you're a manager and you're talking to a CTO about how your team wants to do a refactor, the CTO could be very technical and still bounded by the constraints of, I need to justify this. You want to spend six months doing something. What are the actual benefits? So as much as you can benefit, quantify the change in development cycle process, change in how it affects users, whether it's a direct feature or reduction of future bugs or whatever it is, so that you can then compare against other stakeholder initiatives like bug fixing, feature additions, compliance, and so on. Oftentimes, honestly, it it comes up short that, you know, a lot of people ask for refactors, but we can't be constantly refactoring our code. You have to still be making progress at the same time. So Mm -hmm. there's no one size fits all answer here, but being able to quantify your benefits and compare them to the other things that are going on at the same time is a very good strategy. Right. And I, in fact, I think a lot of the things you mentioned become high level metrics. You talked about developer flow and developer experience. Those things ought to become like developer experience ought to be visible in your retention. If your team is large enough, you should be able to see that better developer experience means people stick around more because they like the work. They like the experience of doing work. 
and better developer flow and experience together should mean that you start seeing higher velocity, fewer bugs, fewer turnaround cycles on pull requests. In fact, we one of the first teams that we worked with at Skiller Well wanted to make a transition from one front-end framework to another. I'm not going to say which ones for fear of getting emails saying, no, the, the true way is backbone.js. Every, everyone else is, is a lie. But yeah, they, they made that transition across and they were they were a company that was all about measuring developer statistics, basically developer team productivity. And after we'd helped them kind of learn these skills, their velocity was four times higher than it had been on the previous framework. Mm. And that is a very kind of tangible stat to have as an outcome that you predict and then can demonstrate to stakeholders that we invested in this restructuring, we invested in these new skills. And now as a result, we are able to do stuff faster. That's a compelling story to internal stakeholders, at least. Oh, for sure. That's very compelling. Four times is, is fantastic. Congratulations to the team. I'm so glad switching to React from Angular worked out for you. Just <laughs> um, another terminology difference that I've been floating around with recently is the difference between correct and compelling, that you can justify a refactor or a restructure in terms of stuff that is correct, but not particularly compelling. Or you can try to understand what motivates the people around you and speak to those needs. Um, the, mm. the big thing that I've I've tackled most frequently is converting from JavaScript to TypeScript, moving from one language to another. And I can describe to you as, as a theoretical stakeholder or manager or some such that TypeScript is a type superset of JavaScript, which allows you to declare the types in your code. And that is all correct. That's very accurate and precise, but it's not a particularly convincing argument for TypeScript. Mm. Or I can understand what drives you and the team. Let's say that it's a team that frequently experiences bugs or has problems with developer-to-developer communications. And I could use that in my description. I could be similarly accurate, slightly less precise, and say, well, TypeScript is a superset of JavaScript variant that you can adopt incrementally that allows you to declare little documentation snippets in your code, and then it will validate to you if you change something that violates those in a way that would likely cause a bug. Meanwhile, it also enforces that you add those things as a form of documentation. And that speaks much more to the needs of the team, to the things that you're actually trying to invest in at that moment. And is, I think, a much more compelling argument to this theoretical team than just, here's the broad definition of TypeScript, do with that what you will. Right, exactly. You're, you're focusing on the benefits. You're saying there, there is a class of bugs that we simply won't have anymore. And we're going to make it easier for developers to communicate, which, you know, as we all know, is a big problem in our company X. And therefore, we're going to expect to see better team cohesion, better productivity between teams as a result of this. Exactly. Yeah. So we, we've talked about how you can how you can implement it and like the idea of kind of doing things side by side. Is there a way of identifying where you begin doing that? Is there a way of, of starting, a kind of surefire way of starting a restructuring project? I don't think there's one surefire way because there are so many different things you could change, so many different areas you could change in. But I think there are a good set of strategies that I try to go with. I try to minimize risk, first and foremost. You never want to uh, suggest something is great and then try it and then break everything that devalues what you said and what you are trying to do. If, say, you're tackling a refactor that can be applied to any number of pages, try the pages that people visit the least or the, the 
most unimportant pages, perhaps your about page rather than the product pricing page, for example. Yeah. If you can do something one file at a time, if say it's a language conversion, like a JS to TS, JavaScript to TypeScript one, then try doing that one file at a time rather than all files at once, whole hog, as they say. Mm. Um, if you are doing something that is meant to increase test coverage, perhaps focus on the testing for it. One of the strategies mentioned in the great Martin Fowler book, Working Effectively with Legacy Code, is to wrap with tests, which give you more mm. confidence. And then only once something is tested and you're confident that it is well understood, do you swap out the old implementation for the new? So there are a few strategies, I think, that let you incrementally change over. But again, it's it's really such a wild and wacky field. There's so many different things we could be doing that there's no one strategy that fits everything, I think. Yeah, and I, I think the, the key thing there is finding that that small bit that you can start with, that you can commit, merge, and ship, that, that becomes kind of part of live code as, as soon as possible. Because what you what you really need to avoid in restructuring, I think, is having your kind of parallel structure continue away from the main code. You you really want to get into a habit of the restructuring happening in the live code, not being an all sort of an alternative code base. It needs to be in there. And so I think the examples you're talking about all fit with that nicely as a thing that you can do. You know, you create your branch, make your change, get it merged in as soon as possible, and then the next bit of work you do kind of furthers that restructuring. Absolutely. I'll tell you one of my great big career disappointment stories with mm. all anonymized names, of course. We were working on an app that allows people to view a page after creating the page. And we had this fantastic new architecture. We were moving to this shiny new front end thing. Performance was going to be way better. Developer productivity way better. All these fantastic benefits. But we weren't really able to do it incrementally. We, we made a whole new version of half the application. And then eventually, after many, many months, shipped that new version of half the application to some users who we knew would only visit that half. That is somewhat incremental. You could argue that it's incremental because we're not completely rewriting everything and then switching over. But it took many months to ship, and then eventually some people saw it. And as you can guess maybe where this is going, we unfortunately were not able to continue with the refactor. We were moved to a different piece of software, and it has just stagnated mm -hmm. since. I don't think people actually see the new shiny version we are all so excited to work on. And since then, I've always tried to keep that in the back of my mind of if we were to all be shunted into somewhere completely different, if the entire team were to be hit by a bus, would this refactor or restructure live on? And unfortunately, in that case, the answer was no, we weren't well prepared to make sure that our code had legs long term. So uh, I'm, I'm still a little, little beat up on the inside about that one. Uh -huh. But I, I think it's a very good example of my unhealthy, unhappy relationship with the concept of a long running feature branch or a V2 mm. rewrite. It's just hard to keep going. I, I worked once with a, an external agency that's a similar situation-ish in that we had apps written in uh, native languages for iOS and Android, and we wanted to rebuild everything in React Native. And they were pricing up the project based on a long standalone build to recreate all of the features that would eventually ship at the end. And it was only because I really sort of forced the issue and put my foot down and said, like, I really feel certain there must be a way of us getting some React Native components, getting them built in, like compiled into native versions that we can then link in with the uh, existing native apps we have, that we should be able to do this 
more gradually um, and have both both versions live at the same time. And it was only after kind of pushing quite hard that eventually I got the response back that this was actually surprisingly easy and they, they thought it was impossible, but they'd sort of looked into it and it was not only not impossible, but n- not as much work as they thought, but it would take longer and add like 5% of the cost of the project. And that felt like an easy 5% to sign off on. Because of course, at some point, there was a chance that things get shelved. And then, you know, that we would have this kind of redundant version of the code that we couldn't use, but we wouldn't want to add any features to the old version for fear of them getting even further apart. Um, And so I, I think, I think if you start out with that mentality of like, we must ship all of our new changes as early as possible, at least in my experience, it's always been possible to do that. And then you avoid that eventuality where like people's hard work ends up not shipping at all or projects getting stalled 90% complete. Yeah. Well, congratulations. That, that's great that you were able to advocate for the incremental you know, adoption strategy there. I think that now that you bring up cost, that's another good thing to think of where we have not just the raw developer salary that you could average across on a team to determine the cost of a project, but you also have the opportunity cost. How much more money would your organization be making if the team Mm -hmm. continued to ship product instead of this refactor or restructure? So that is another factor to think of. If it's going to take you, let's say, $1 million worth of development time and cost you $500,000 of potential sales, that's $1.5 million being put towards this restructure. What benefits will your restructure give you that are worth one and a half million dollars? Oftentimes, mm. you, you can quantify those. You know, in six years, we'll be X percent more productive and we'll have made 10 million. But it, it can be very difficult and kind of hand wavy to, to work with numbers at that scale, especially given how vague and hand wavy engineering developing time already is. Mm. Even when you are able to combine the restructured version in and get your restructured code live as soon as possible. There's a danger that the beginning of the project is very exciting and the end goal is very exciting. There's a bit in the middle where all of the hard work still remains, right? Early on, we do lots of small bits. Everyone wants the end goal where the the old bad way that we're, we're getting rid of no longer exists anywhere. And we get one of those nice pull requests that's like, Mm. You know, plus plus five lines minus two hundred thousand yeah. <laughs> lines. That every, everyone loves being the author on those. How do you keep that momentum going, and how do you keep it feeling exciting and convince convince people to to see the restructuring over the line to get it to a hundred percent? That's such a hard challenge. I'll give you another story. This one can actually be de-anonymized. I was working at Codecademy on our core learning platform, which was going through a rewrite. This is an education technology platform that people use to learn to code for free or freemium. And people who are learning to code are very sensitive to the computer. If something breaks and it's our fault, they may still consider it their fault. So we're very averse to any sort of bugs, weird, bad user flow shenanigans, anything that might detract from the learning experience, the pedagogy of it all. And that made us very sensitive to swapping out the core learning platform. And even though we had written a mostly working version of it that was smoother, less tech debt, was easier to add new features on, I added a little auto format button with sparkles and it was a wonderful thing. It was just still such a challenging, difficult, scary thing to swap out most of the existing pieces, even though there were new pieces that had been added in that used the new architecture. Therefore, meaning we had two architectures running in production. What a lovely situation. And yet, that, that is something we struggled with. We eventually did ship the, the new version. Um, 
but how do you motivate the, for the long term, especially when there's legitimate fear involved, things that could go wrong? I'd say being able to quantify the cost is a good start. You know, we were spending X percent more, one and a half times the amount of dev time maintaining these two platforms. It was longer builds, longer list of dependencies, longer list of bugs getting caused by the average change. We didn't do a very good job of internal dev advocacy. So a lot of people didn't know where the restructure was going or they weren't sure why we were doing it. So having uh, effective documentation and advocacy internally, you know, being excited in the team meetings. Uh, one little rule I like to have is if you have a project, it needs to be ongoing. You can't just pause something for six months and then eventually get back to it. People will forget. Folks, leave the company, leave the team. So always yeah. have at least one person working on some small bugs which both makes sure that you have progress going and gives you the opportunity to get ecstatic and excited about it in the meetings and just demonstrate that you're doing something fun, get people interested. And then finally, eventually, I think it was just costly to keep it going. So we put our foot down and we said, okay, we know we have other things we have to work on, but this has been going on for long enough, literally years at this point. We need to mm. just buckle down and finish it. That can be a very good forcing function. We need to finish this. Here's three months, just go do to get you to understand what are the actual tasks remaining. Oftentimes, you just need to ship to 10% of users or some similar incremental strategy just to, to get that final list out there, which is a little upsetting to say. I don't like using users as a bug farm. I don't like subjecting them to that. But at the end of the day, if you have something new that's big and scary, you have to test it in some way. So whatever way you can do to get internal testing and or real user testing is, is going to be beneficial there. Mm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you, you are going to cause new bugs. That's the rule of all code, I think. As soon as you hit commit, you have almost certainly caused a bug. And that's something to recognize and embrace. Yep. And when you're doing a restructuring, you are probably replacing one set of bugs of one set of difficulties with the code, at least, with another. And therefore, looking for those and finding them and healing them um, as quickly as possible should be part of your strategy. That makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. If you look at the amount of bugs per line of code in any major piece of software, there have been studies shown on this. It, it varies with language, which is something that people who work in modern low-level languages like Go and Rust are very excited about because they're way better than C. But even in the really good languages, it's, I forget, let's say whatever, one bug per f 10 lines of code, one bug per 100 lines of code. If you're touching 200,000 lines of code, do the math. That's a lot of bugs. Even if your architecture is being restructured to something way more resilient and way harder to cause bugs in, even if it's a 10x better architecture, 200,000 divided by 10 divided by that number is still going to be dozens or hundreds of bugs. It's just a fact of life. That's, that's the industry we, we work in. Nothing you can do about it. You can just make it better. You can't get rid of it. Yeah, 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 definitely. Some of what we've been talking about, I think, assumes a similar language or a similar framework that we are rebuilding in. Does any of your your thinking change if you're moving to a different language altogether? I think these strategies for me are similar, but the weights of different factors are much different. Mm. I don't like moving a team to something new that they're not familiar with because it takes a long time to gain familiarity with anything. If you're working in, say, a high-level code base, Java, C-sharp, JavaScript, something like that, and you decide that, you know what, performance is critical, we slow, users hate it, we're going to switch to Rust, something low-level like that. It might be the technically, objectively best thing outside the context of your team, but you're going to have to retrain everyone. How many people these days 
know both Java and Rust, let's say. It's a large investment. So something that would take a team already familiar with both areas, say a month to do, could easily take years six to 12 months, just in terms of learning it, doing a new version, realizing this is your first major project in that new area, and then you have to scrap it all and do it again. So I think you don't make project decisions in a vacuum. There's no such thing as a greenfield project. No, no new shiny thing that is completely untouched by civilization. There's just mm. stuff your team is familiar with and new areas you're going to have to learn, which can sometimes be a very small jump and sometimes be a very large, costly jump. I don't think that it's very easy to make that determination, and it's ex- exponentially harder if you also have to factor in learning a new language or framework. I think that's definitely true, right? A lot of approaches to learning involve giving you access to resources and then have you actually put it into practice on the job for the first time, which just really sets people up to fail. It's one of the things people have turned to to skill the world before, actually, hmm. for in the past when they've had to rebuild. Like we had one company that was rebuilding from Ruby to Golang, and they had to Oof. take all of their engineers along that journey, which is is not a kind of straightforward transition. Because, you know, the, the vast majority of learning approaches don't try and get people genuinely capable. They try and give you kind of information that you can then experiment with by yourself. And so it is It is hard without a kind of the right approach to make that transition. Absolutely. It's a catch-22. How can you possibly gain experience in something if you're not actively breaking it for people? Yeah, well, that's interesting. So uh, at some point, uh, remind me to talk your ear off about the difference between experience and skills. I think, I think broadly, mm-hmm. we treat experience as the only way to get skills, but experience can be simulated. And so by, by simulating real-world experience, we can give people skills much faster. That's the, the sort of 10-second version of a much longer <laughs> rant that will take in modern hiring practices and how we assess developers and also leadership and other people like that and how we do it all in the wrong way. But anyway, let me ask you a question first, Josh, because I'm interested in your background, particularly because you're so focused on the open source community where I imagine the costs of restructuring are much bigger or sort of harder to anticipate upfront in a way because your your users, the people who are on the the other developers who are on the receiving end of your restructurings are potentially in the thousands, potentially in the millions, and you don't have a day-to-day working relationship with them. Compared to in in a sort of SME where there might be 100 developers, all of whom you can kind of hit up on Slack with an at channel message and say, oh, hey, just so you know, we've made this breaking change to the API. Here's how things are going to work from now on. That must significantly change how you think about restructuring code. It does. And it's very frustrating at times. I went full-time open source because I love open source software. This has been something that's benefited my career and benefited the world quite substantially, mm. uncountably so. It's, it's a wonderful place to be, but it is still somewhat the Wild West. We don't have sustainable funding, so people bounce in and out. Inherently, free open source software is made so that people can bounce in and out. So it's kind of like working on the absolutely worst organized team you could possibly imagine. People still have positive intent. Everyone I work with is lovely. They really care. But gosh darn, one of the maintainers on the most uh, notable project I work on has not been seen in four months. We don't know. I don't even know their gender. I think it's a he, but that's just hearsay. I don't know their name. I don't know their time zone. I just know they come Mm -hmm. in once in a while and do amazing work. Can you imagine working in a company where someone's like that? No matter how genius level their contributions are, they're out. For us, oh my God, this is a blessing. 
So yeah, it, it can be quite difficult. But it's not dissimilar from working at a very large company. I think the larger the pool of developers you have to support as a, let's say, as a developer-facing project, the larger that pool, the more like open source it becomes. When you're at a small company, you can you know, just turn over your shoulder virtually to the next person in the Slack channel. Or if you're at a small or a medium-sized company, you can add channel, say, in Slack. But if you're at a company with 100,000 people, you don't know everyone you're working with. You don't know what that personal context is for all of them. So it becomes kind of like the open source world where you can scream into the void about updates you're doing and hope that people listen, but you have to go out of your way to help them. You have to provide good documentation. You have to make sure that breaking changes are warned about long in advance and are worth mm. the breaking change. You can't just rename an API because you know the new name is better. You have to really justify it. Make sure that the old one still works for months. Then it starts logging. Then it starts logging warnings. Then you have to reach out to the team still using the old endpoint and get them to fix. And oftentimes you have to fix it for them. But even fixing it for them is work they did not account for in their sprint planning. So now mm. you have the situation where you've got a backlog bug to move off of the old endpoint for six months and so on and so forth. So yeah, it can be challenging in open source just as it is in uh, larger companies. But it's, I think it's worth it. I mean, I can't imagine a world in which we don't have these free open source software projects eating industry from the inside. It's, it's just such a, a massive accelerator for the industry. So it's a good place to be. 100% agreed. Josh, I want to firstly say thank you so much for this conversation. I've really enjoyed chatting to you about this and, and hearing your thoughts. Can you tell us where can people find your work and support you in what you're doing? Well, thank you for asking. Uh, you can find me on the internet as at Joshua K. Goldberg. That's on GitHub, Twitter, my website, joshuakgoldberg.com. I'm on Fostodon for, for Mastodon, a system that I'm still getting used to thanks to the shenanigans with Twitter. I'm on GitHub. Um, if you want to sponsor me, that would be wonderful. I, I do shared open source projects and I help mentor people in open source. So that's github.com slash sponsors slash Joshua K. Goldberg. The most important project I work on right now is TypeScript ESLint, which is the tooling that lets you run ESLint and Prettier on TypeScript. So if your company uses TypeScript, you almost certainly use us, and therefore you should probably get involved with us, so at the very least contribute. So we have an open collective. Go to typescript-eslint.io to learn more. And if you're not yet linting your code or formatting your code that is TypeScript, you should reach out to me because that's a really good, important thing, and your developers will almost certainly thank you for setting that up. Awesome. Thank you again, Josh. We'll put some of those links in the, the notes for the program. And I want to say thank you to our listeners as well. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Join us again next time when we will be discussing another question that is primarily context-based. 